Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Jennifer Burick Pierce, the author of Narratives, Nerdfighters, and New Media. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I'm hoping you could start talking a little bit about how this book came about, how you got interested in um, the nerdfighters and writing this book. Well, I'm trained in a lot of respects as a historian, and I've spent a lot of time in the history of print culture. But as I'm sure you know, uh, we've had a lot of conversations in the academy about digital humanities and those questions and issues that are emerging from the digital humanities and things that my students were saying to me about their interests and what they wanted to learn more about. All of these things sort of helped me to sort of re-envision and think differently about uh, some of the longstanding canonical texts that govern print culture and the history of reading and really sort of had me... um, looking for new ways of thinking about reading and how we understand readers. So before we sort of get into the book itself, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about um, who the nerd fighters are and, and a bit about John Green and Hank Green and sort of what this space that you looked at is. Okay, so I will start with the the clearer or simpler part of that question. So John Green is an Indianapolis novelist who is best known, I think, at this point for The Fault in Our Stars, but he's written a number of critically acclaimed and popular novels, uh, Looking for Alaska, Paper Towns, Um, as I turn my head to try and look at my shelves to see what else I've got by him on the shelves. Um, but you know, he's, he's got about five young adult novels at this point, many of which are on bestseller lists and on award lists as well. He has a younger brother, Hank, who is the head of Complexly Media Production Company or or Complexly Studios located in Missoula, Montana, sorry. And I guess one of the differences as they started out is that whereas John Green has always been bookish, has been an author, has been a reviewer and things like that. Um, Hank's background originally was as a scientist and as someone doing environmental advocacy. Um, In 2007, the two of them decided, well, I guess it was technically decided in 2006. And in 2007, they began their shared YouTube channel, which is called Vlog Brothers. Um, and so that 
channel has been on YouTube now for something like 13 years. Um, so to come to, and everybody, oh, rewind, rewind, sorry, literal, uh, metaphoric rewind, not necessarily a little literal re rewind. Um, the reason that I pointed out that Hank originally had this reputation as a scientist and as an environmental advocate is because that his role has become, I think, increasingly complex. And so now he heads this media uh, production company. He has headed a number of other media and related ventures. And at this point, he also has two novels that are um, have been published in the last few years, both of which debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. But they are novels for adults, and they're speculative fiction. Uh, so a somewhat different type of novel than his brother writes. So, you know, again, they, they have the Vlogbrothers YouTube channel. It's been on since 2007. Um, and originally, like one of the first places, as I understand it, that n the term nerdfighter emerged was as the community of viewers of that Vlogbrothers channel. But like many things, when a uh, channel's been around for 13 years, when people have been living and writing and producing media for that long, it it becomes more complex. And so there are people who have watched Crash Course, but haven't really been part of uh, the Vlogbrothers audience. There are people who read the novels, but don't do the YouTube videos so much. They've got um, podcasting audiences. So, so they're, they're audiences and the people who might affiliate with that term nerdfighteria at this point are different than uh, then in 2007, when this whole thing started. Right. It's really interesting um, to sort of some of the origins of these two doing this. So I remember when I first taught Will Grayson, Will Grayson, which I love. And it's a fabulous, fabulous book. <laughs> it's one of my, my students always loved it. But then the students would have to pick one of the authors in the course to to research and they always like John Green, but they found out and they really loved how John and Hank um, started saying they were, and you talk about this a bit, that idea of communicating virtually for a year, right? So mm -hmm. can you talk a bit about like how they've used this space um, to create different ways for themselves to communicate, to communicate with each other? Let's start with that. Um, and then go into maybe communicating also with the um, the fans and the people who participate in those spaces. Right. So as I understand it, and I believe that this conversation played out at least in part via AOL um, Instant Messenger, they they um, had some YouTube channels that they had started watching. There was one in particular that they liked. Um, and so that, I think, was influential in their decision-making. But they also sort of tell this story about how there's an age difference between the two of them and how John had moved away to go to boarding school. And so that that sort of created this sort of gap that they were trying to bridge uh, in their relationship via this, this YouTube channel. So it really did sort of start out as this plan for they were going to do this every other day back and forth um, 
communication with one another um, on YouTube, on this YouTube channel that they had just created. Uh, They, of course, had rules or sort of a plan for what the norms of their communication were there. And so, yeah, um, that was basically the the essence of the plan is, is YouTube only that they weren't going to to text and and send messages in the way that they had but that instead that this channel was supposed to be a primary mechanism for their communication um there are people of course who can watch your youtube channels who can comment and like or dislike your um the, the youtube videos that you put up And there are things that you used to be able to do on YouTube that you can't do now, functions that have been disabled as as the media in the um, on the platform has has grown and changed. But you used to be able to link videos and create responses that way. And so there were people, you know, who would not only, you know, comment on the videos they'd posted, but people who would link uh, their videos through a mechanism that I don't quite understand, not having been on the platform back then. Um, you know, so there were, that was sort of how some of the initial parts of it worked and how some of the initial interactive mechanisms there worked. And so you, they've been, like you said, doing this for over a decade, right? About 13 yes. years. And so we have um, a number of platforms and we have a number of different groups of people sort of participating. So one of the things you um, talk about and focus on is sort of those demographics, um, who's out there, who's doing this. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what those demographics sort of look like, who who are some of of these populations um, and people that we see uh, participating. It varies. <laughs> and the reason that's significant, the reason that's not your, you know, sort of usual dodge is if you look at a lot of the mentions of Nerdfighteria and the audiences for John Green's work, those discussions often assume that it's a bunch of teenaged young women. And that's really I mean, certainly there are young teens and there are young women who like his work, but the audience is more diverse than that. And particularly one of the things, you know, having watched Hank do his Nerdfighteria census analysis videos year after year, one of the things that he's very directly said uh, clearly in the last couple of years, maybe a little farther back, is that Nerdfighteria is aging. There is a lot of evidence, you know, from his statistics and other uh, sources that these are not just teenagers, that you have people who are early in their adult lives. You also have people who are later and older in their lives as well. Um, You know, so, so the age of viewers and listeners and readers is older than I think is often assumed. Um, There are other interesting facets. There are places where we can't get good demographic data um, or 
direct demographic data and we have to do some inference. And to me, one of the places that you would start to look for other points of of diversity in their audience is their podcast, Dear Hank and John. And there's no information that they have released directly about their listenership other than the the reader letters that they share. But if you do research on podcasts, one of the things that you'll see is that the average podcast listener tends to be older, tends to be male, and tends to be relatively affluent is what some of the readily available research tells us about that. Um, other things, other points of that, that tell us we don't necessarily have a homogeneous audience for their work. Um, we have we have data, sales data on the young adult novel, and multiple people who have analyzed young adult novel sales tell us that the vast majority, like over 50%, maybe 55% of young adult novels are bought by adults for their own personal reading. Um, there are multiple indicators that tell us that there is an international audience for Vlogbrothers, for uh, the Crash Course educational videos that Hank's company produces, and things like that. So it's perhaps a, a diffuse answer, but the, I guess basically part of what I'm trying to say is that there are both young readers and young listeners and older readers and older listeners, and that these people are located both in the United States and beyond its boundaries. And one of the things, and you mentioned it when you were talking about this, but I really want to highlight because I think it's fascinating is the census that they do um, and then that they analyze. So can you talk a little bit about their census that they send out uh, or they have readers or ask people to participate in? Actually, yeah, the census is kind of fascinating and it has changed. And I think, you know, I think when everyone was younger, uh, I think that they they thought it was sort of fun to, or, you know, and I, I think Hank may be the primary voice behind the census. Certainly he is, the, the analysis, analysis of it happens on his channel rather than on the Vlogbrothers channel. Um, but there used to be tons and tons of questions. I mean, I don't have all of the the sequence of how the the numbers of questions morphed over time. But I mean, it got to a point where, you know, you, you had like 30 questions and 45 questions. I mean, there were really a lot of questions being asked. And so if someone was going to answer them all, it sort of involved sinking a certain amount of time into, uh, into that communication and in the last year or so, Hank started to recognize that having a really long questionnaire like that was going to invite a certain type of respondent and that there were certain types of people who were not going to respond. And so in the last couple of years, the census has grown much shorter. But, you know, it's asking for some of your basic demographic data about age, about how long you've been watching Vlogbrothers, um, about what media productions, you know, like, do you know John's novels? Do you know their podcasts? You know, 
so sort of checking about where you're interacting with the community or what types of media they produce that you're um, invested in. Um, they ask questions about reading. And that to me is one of the fascinating things. It's like, this is ostensibly happening. The primary vehicle for it in the past has been uh, through their their YouTube channel. They they started the census before they had things like their their podcast and some of these other uh, media products that get a lot of their time and have attracted their own audiences at this point. But even from that first census, there were questions about books, and there were people who were writing back to them about books and about reading. Um, I think my one of my favorite responses was there was something about how you know you're a fan or something like that. And it's like answering a like 78 question <laughs> census. I was like, yep, yeah, um, they have a good sense of humor right there. And they've got that down. <laughs> But, and one of the things so you, you talk about like this, the fact that they have all these sort of different channels, they have these different outlets. Um, I work with student teachers and, and pre-service teachers, and they love the crash courses, right? A lot of crash teachers course use is those. great. I've been using those with my students, my students who want to be like, you know, young adult librarians and who want to be school librarians. You know, we, we started working with the, the media literacy uh, crash course videos this term. Yeah, they're awesome. And and so one of the things that you do talk about, too, is so, so we have this fandom, but we also need to think about like how they're sort of making money and they also do philanthropic work. So how that works and and sort of how they're they're participating and um, using these. So can you talk a bit about um, what you found or what you see in those areas? Well, there are a lot of different elements and things to consider. Um, it's, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm sitting here having this, this pause about, okay, like, where do you start in, in trying to explain the finances of all these different things? Um, a lot of people will tell you, I mean, obviously, like, YouTube has advertising ads run on YouTube channels. Um, a lot of people, though, will tell you that that's not a really great revenue stream, but they did start pretty early um, in their channel when they began to accrue enough views and subscribers that uh, that ads were being placed on their channel and that they were starting to accrue at least some ad revenue about talking with the community about where that revenue was going to go so that it wasn't just, you know, money coming back to them, but money that started to be invested in supporting other educational YouTubers and in supporting charities. Um, there are a lot of products out there you know, that recognize the community that, that they make, you know, from, from t-shirts to stickers, you know, you name it, there's, there's probably at some point like posters, I think are another, um, you know, there, there is a, there, there is merch as they say in the business and there is a sales outlet that Hank's company also helps run. Um, 
as, and they've changed. You know, there there are people who are not necessarily part of the the nerd fighteria scene who sell their merchandise and market their merchandise through that outlet. And that, but then there is the stuff that is specific to to Hank's work, to John's work, to Vlog Brothers, and to the the channels that are directly affiliated with with Hank's company um, complexly. And so part of what I would tell you about that is that they have changed what they're doing and made it so that some of the products that are sold by them, where that money is going directly into charity, you know, that that basically they have earmarked certain things that they sell and said, all the profits from this will go to support this particular charitable enterprise. And the thing that they are invested in supporting right now is a center for maternal health in Sierra Leone. Um, They have committed a significant amount of their own money, as well as uh, using certain products that they sell online to, um, to support that. And it's really significant. I mean, a lot of people, it's it's through Partners in Health and Partners in Health, among other people, has done part of the fundraising. But this week, no, no, it's it must have been last week. I'm sitting here going this week. Uh, that, that weird pandemic time warp sense that we have. It, it was last week uh, that John Green announced that they had had enough funds raised to break ground on that maternal health center and the the government in Sierra Leone was expecting a pretty substantial financial commitment before it would agree to take that material step that first you know real strong step toward establishing the center um you know so that was kind of a a big deal but yeah there there's a lot of their merch that is now going to fund that center. Um, There are some things where maybe uh, the merch is dedicated to that, but maybe there is an independent artist who's creating the graphics for it. So they're going to pay the artists that they're hiring, and then they're going to put the the profit part of uh, their their merchandise sales into, um, into supporting these charitable uh, activities, um, you know. So I've been. I think I feel like I've been talking a lot about the the merch and things like that. Uh, the other big deal event is happening in February of 2021, and that's a shift from the way it's always been done in the past. In the past, when they've done this online charity fundraiser called Project for Awesome, it has always happened late in the year, usually December, and it's it's an advocacy event where people are making videos, posting them on YouTube, basically talking about why some charitable organization or nonprofit is a great place, what they do for the world and for people, and why you uh, should consider donating to them. And people watch these videos, people donate these video to these uh, 
no, it's, and sorry, scratch the donation. Let's not talk about the donation part now. Uh, but they watch the videos, they vote on the videos, they comment on the videos. And so there's this intense interaction over 48 hours of live streaming, you know, that, that basically is around raising funds to support uh big projects like Partners in Health and related charities. But then part of that money is also reserved to um, the, the, you know, the people are, ah, let's try that again. Uh, People are advocating for particular charities and nonprofits. And so those nonprofits that are being advocated for, the ones that get the most votes can also get a share of the uh, funds being raised as a grant to them, you know, so, so it's a fairly complicated thing. Right. And, and so we've got this advocacy, we've got all this work, but one of the things that's also really important um, to this sort of spaces and fandoms is the role of reading, right? Right. And that the reader, right? But it's really interesting because they have branched out, they've done all these other things, but it also comes back to them as readers. So I, you, and you, your last two chapters sort of focus on that, you know, what is going on with the readers. So I'm wondering if we can start by talking a little bit about what you found when looking at the census of what kinds of books and, and what they're saying that they're reading and how they're sort of sharing their reading. Um, yeah, I think that their reading is really interesting. I would say that, like, if I were to try and make a pithy conclusion, instead of like, walking through a lot of uh, different points of consideration, as I have been, I would tell you that one of the conclusions that I have drawn about their reading is that reading happens in the world, not just in your head. You know, that that aside from all of the personal preferences that I'm happy to lay out for you, um, you know, that, that part of what I became increasingly convinced of is that, you know, they, they want to meet with other readers. They want to talk with other readers. Uh, they do cute things like uh, some there, there have been some nerd fighters who have been known to like leave encouraging notes in library books that that they return to their library. Um, you know, there, there's just a lot of it where it's about you know books shaping your worldview, uh, books being sort of like an emblem of personal identity. So so reading is like this multifaceted. Thing in in Nerdfighteria, um, there is, of course, as we might expect, tremendous interest in the books that John Green has written. But they're not just genre fiction readers. I mean, certainly there are some genre fiction preferences. People are very inclined to to science fiction and fantasy. That one emerges as one of the more popular genres that, that nerd fighters read via that census. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of what is sometimes referred to as intensive reading. Um, you know, so the idea that you read a book over and over. And the reason that that's significant is, at least to me, 
is that when you study the history of reading, um, there were, of course, points when books were hard to get, where there weren't as many books as we have available to us now, or it was expensive to buy books. Uh, you know, there, there were a lot of constraints on, on the number of books that you might have access to. And so some historians of reading talk about the intensive reading, how people reread books rather than going and looking for the latest bestseller. And one of the things that really, really interested me is that there is a sizable portion of nerdfighter readers who have that same habit, who do read intensively as well as, as looking for, for new books. Um, so I found that really fascinating. No, I have to say, I've been doing some research on Harry Potter and reading, and it's the same kind of thing, right? That like, I've read this book over a hundred times and yes. I got that same kind of feel when I was like reading and thinking about that. And I thought that was really, that intensity was really interesting. Yeah, it is. You know, and there's all sorts of things that they reread, whether it's John Green books, whether it's Jane Austen, uh, you know. But, but I think that another sort of takeaway is that there are a lot of nerd fighters who feel very intensely about reading. You know, that they've got a lot to say about it. And, and yeah, they're, they're looking for those conversations. And one of the things you sort of, your final chapter talks about The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, right? And the importance mm -hmm. of that. And before we talk a little bit about that book, I'm wondering, because one of the things that comes out through this and that is important is sort of John Green's relationship to writing and how he, and how he's been very open um, about his sort of fears and concerns and um, sort of mental health issues and around a writer. So can you talk a little bit, because I think The Fault in Our Stars is probably one of his, probably his most famous work. Um, and then didn't, he didn't produce anything for five or six years after that. So can you talk a little bit about how he sort of talks about himself as a writer? You know, that's, that's really an interesting question. And I don't know if I've thought about that per se. Um, I mean, you know, the, the thing that comes to mind first, you know, when you ask that question is that, you know, yeah, he's, he's produced five novels plus the two pieces that are co-authored or, or two books that are co-authored. And he's about to release his first adult nonfiction book in 2021. Um, you know, some of these novels he's written are bestsellers. They you know, have seen tremendous popularity and, and critical reception. So you'd think that, um, that, that this would be something that he is particularly proud of. Uh, but I've seen interviewers ask him, you know, what is your legacy going to be? You know, because he's been listed as time, you know, among times, you know, 100 most influential people of the year and all this stuff. So, so, you know, you would think that there would be plenty of fodder, you know, for, for this question of reputation and legacy. But the way he tends to answer that question is to say that the most important thing that he, uh, 
that he's done or that he you know will leave behind him is his children which i find you know immensely powerful and and just really a wonderful and thoughtful sort of response even if it's not the one we want to hear from the best selling right. novelist <laughs> Right. It's, I mean, I think it's really interesting that like just his whole sort of relationship and, and thinking about writing and, and all of that, and especially with The Fault in Our Stars. So uh, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about, for those folks who don't know The Fault in Our Stars, just a bit, okay. you know, a brief insight into that. And then sort of what you found with um, those readers' relationship um, to it, especially in Amsterdam and and what you've learned. Okay. Yeah. So The Fault in Our Stars was released as a novel in 2012. And the movie version came out, I believe, in 2014. Um, It is, its title has a Shakespearean allusion um, to Romeo and Juliet and its star-crossed lovers. Spoiler alert, there are star-crossed lovers in The Fault in Our Stars as well, though for rather different reasons. Um, You know, so you have this narrative, and it's about two teens. I mean, they have friends. There are other characters, of course, who are in the novel, but the two central characters are two teens who meet uh, through a young person's cancer support group. and they are, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm like, part of me is sort of mentally um, backtracking to that question that you asked earlier about uh, John Green and John Green as a writer. And, you know, I, it's important, I think, that he's writing about teens and it's consistent with what he says about his work and about um, the type of novels that he writes, because he says that he's very pleased to be writing about adolescents, about teenagers, that that young adulthood is this rich and interesting time, a time when people are learning so much about themselves, and to be able to to write about that time of life and to have people in that time of life as his readers is another one of those things that he describes as very rewarding and very meaningful. Um, you know, so so we've got these two teens who have cancer, and they have a. It's not called the Make a Wish Foundation, but it's that type of wish granting organization for kids who are considerably ill, if not terminally ill. And so these two teens in his book are interested in a particular novelist who lives in Amsterdam. And so the two teens are able to go over to Amsterdam to meet with this um, famous author, courtesy of this foundation. Um, And I, I guess... I'm assuming at this point that many people have already read the book, but let's just say that the the visit doesn't go quite as they planned. Um, but while they're there, they have a very important conversation. And in the book, that conversation happens near a particular park. In the movie version, it happens at a bench along 
a canal. And so because I think of the visuals as well as the popularity of the movies, uh, people have managed to figure out where that bench is in Amsterdam and people have gone there and left all sorts of messages and mementos uh, that, that talk about their reading of the book, that signal perhaps that they've watched the movie, um, and that tells stories of their own lives sometimes. So it's it's really fascinating. There are blog posts about making this type of trip. There are uh, videos... Not, some videos, a few videos, but more still photos that you can find on uh, some different social media platforms. So there are lots of different inputs into the idea that that it's a, a pilgrimage of sort, uh, that you have a lot of readers and viewers, people who like this book, who feel deeply touched by the this story, who go to this place and, um, and, and whether they're, they're taking photos or whether they're leaving graffiti there, there are a lot of signs that basically commemorate that, that trip and that experience of going there. Right. And, and sometimes that uh, bench, I think the bench disappeared, right? For a little while. The then... bench disappeared. And the <laughs> other thing that's happened, I mean, cause I, I managed to see the replaced bench. I've, I've been to the bench and uh, yeah, it is, it is deeply, deeply fascinating to go there and see that. And then, you know, and then people realize why you're there, you know, cause there are canal boats and the canal boats, you know, they're going past you and they realize all of a sudden why this person is sitting at that bench. And they'll start pointing, you know, like, 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 oh, someone's sitting there in this weird out of the way space on this canal. Why? And, it, you know, you can see people make the connection as those canal boat tours go by um, and, you know, and people will wait there. But the other thing that has happened beyond the replacement of that bench is they've replaced the replacement bench and it's a different style. Um, I, I had a friend go who, who she had a conference um, in Amsterdam and her husband agreed to go out and look at the bench to see what the graffiti was like for me. And there is still graffiti there, but it is a different style of bench than it was uh, when the movie was filmed. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, I understand. But yeah, no, it's like going um, in Paris and, and going to the graves and and sometimes having, um, you can't go anywhere near them because they're all blocked off now because of all the graffiti and everything that happened. So, yes. <laughs> uh, so what, what do you think? So what are the, when you, you sort of end with talking a little bit about how you see this um, t- looking at the changes in reading and how we read and how we sort of think about reading. So I'm wondering if you can just briefly like talk about what you, why you, I don't want to, I'll say it, but I don't really mean it just like, why is this important? Right. But why is looking at this and why is thinking about the ways that the, that the greens and these spaces have engaged readers? Like what, what is this telling us about what we're sort of seeing in the history of the book and the history of reading? Well, I mean, one thing I would tell you is that reading and social media use 
are entwined and that communities of readers use social media and different communicative platforms to connect online. And I mean, I can't tell you how many places or how often or how recently, I mean, I swear I was reading something about this yesterday, but there are all of these people who insist that social media, you know, is deleterious for long form reading, that, you know, social media means people don't pay attention to books. Um, you know, so there's this rhetoric, and I feel like this rhetoric will not die about how, well, if you're you're watching YouTube videos, that means you're not reading. And I think what you can see pretty clearly through the example of this community, that it is indeed possible to both like social media and, you know, to, to be active, to know how to use it. And to be a reader, to be someone who feels passionately about books and believes in the importance of books. And I mean, you know, you've, uh, you've used the word fandom, you know, the idea that you've got a 21st century novelist who is that popular, who has not just readers, but a fandom. I mean, that to me is, it is a fascinating testimonial to the importance of reading and books and authorship. Yeah, no, I, it makes me, it always makes me happy when people sort of push back on that idea that if you're on social media or on your phone, that you're not actually reading. <laughs> I'm like, well, what else, what else are you doing? Right? Well, because uh, you, you can read. I mean, think about, you know, all the books and, and articles that you can access on your phone. Yeah. And I, and you know, and I think about my um, teenager is, sort of obsessed with Reddit, right? But he reads Reddit and then finds non, right? And it's engaged him in nonfiction. And so he's reading very widely in spaces that I don't think he would have thought about without that social media connection. And I see that similar here, right? That this has introduced people to other texts, to different spaces to go and how important it is. Yes, exactly. So we've been talking a bit. So my final question always is if there's anything that you are sort of working on now, you've got in the works that you want, you know, sort of brag about or talk about or anything with this book, um, sort of last words you have or want to talk about. Um, I feel like I should have something really profound to say, but I feel like my answers to those questions will uh, take us in a lot of different directions. So if I were going to focus on our conversation here and its topic, I would say that one thing we haven't talked about in the course of our, I admit, um, lengthy conversation is the chronology, um, that when I was building this book and trying to make sure that I knew what happened when and the sequence of events that created this um, community and the surrounding media is that I, I started making notes about, you know, dates for significant events. And that grew into a chronology of events from 2005 to 2020. And it's hidden almost in an appendix um, following the text of this book. But 
you know, a, a lot of people that I've been able to talk with have have enjoyed the chronology and like seeing the way the history of the community is unfolded, um, not just through the narrative of the book, but but through the chronology toward the back of the book. <laughs> Everything. Well, it's been wonderful. This is Jennifer Burke. Bure- oh, sorry, I'm going to fail. See, look at me. Um, this was Jennifer Burek. Pierce, who wrote Narratives, Nerdfighters, and New Media. Jennifer, thanks for talking with me. You are so welcome. Thanks for being interested in this book.